Section 132 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 132 London, March 16th, Old Style, 1752 My dear friend, How do you go on with the most useful and most necessary of all studies, the study of the world? Do you find that you gain knowledge, and does your daily experience at once extend and demonstrate your improvement? You will possibly ask me how you can judge of that yourself. I will tell you a sure way of knowing. Examine yourself, and see whether your notions of the world are changed, by experience, from what they were two years ago in theory, for that alone is one favorable symptom of improvement. At that age, I remember it in myself, every notion that one forms is erroneous. One hath seen few models, and those none of the best, to form one's self upon. One thinks that everything is to be carried by spirit and vigor, that art is meanness, and that versatility and complacence are the refuge of pusillanimity and weakness. This most mistaken opinion gives an indelicacy, a brusquerie, and a roughness to the manners. Fools, who can never be undeceived, retain them as long as they live. Reflection, with a little experience, makes men of sense shake them off soon. When they come to be a little better acquainted with themselves, and with their own species, they discover that plain right reason is, nine times in ten, the fettered and shackled attendant of the triumph of the heart and the passions, and consequently they address themselves nine times in ten to the conqueror, not to the conquered, and conquerors, you know, must be applied to in the gentlest, the most engaging, and the most insinuating manner. Have you found out that every woman is infallibly to be gained by every sort of flattery, and every man by one sort or other? Have you discovered what variety of little things affect the heart, and how surely they collectively gain it? If you have, you have made some progress. I would try a man's knowledge of the world, as I would a schoolboy's knowledge of Horace, not by making him construe Massinus, Atavis, Edite, Regibus, which he could do in the first form, but by examining him as to the delicacy and curiosa felicitas of that poet. A man requires very little knowledge and experience of the world, to understand glaring, highly colored, and decided characters. They are but few, and they strike at first, but to distinguish the almost imperceptible shades, and the nice gradations of virtue and vice, sense and folly, strength and weakness, of which characters are commonly composed, demands some experience, great observation, and minute attention. In the same cases, most people do the same things, but with this material difference— upon which the success commonly turns. A man who hath studied the world knows when to time, and where to place them. He hath analyzed the characters he applies to, and adapted his address and his arguments to them. But a man, of what is called plain good sense, who hath only reasoned by himself, and not acted with mankind, mistimes, misplaces, runs precipitately and bluntly at the mark, and falls upon his nose in the way. In the common manners of social life, every man of common sense hath the rudiments, the ABC of civility. He means not to offend, and even wishes to please, and, if he hath any real merit, will be received and tolerated in good company. But that is far from being enough, for though he may be received, he will never be desired, though he does not offend, he will never be loved. But like some little, insignificant, neutral power, surrounded by great ones, he will neither be feared nor courted by any, but by turns invaded by all, whenever it is their interest. A most contemptible situation! 
whereas a man who hath carefully attended to and experienced the various workings of the heart, and the artifices of the head, and who by one shade can trace the progression of the whole colour, who can at the proper times employ all the several means of persuading the understanding, and engaging the heart, may and will have enemies, but will and must have friends. He may be opposed, but he will be supported too. His talents may excite the jealousy of some, but his engaging arts will make him beloved by many more. He will be considerable, he will be considered. Many different qualifications must conspire to form such a man, and to make him at once respectable and amiable. The least must be joined to the greatest. The latter would be unavailing without the former, and the former would be futile and frivolous without the latter. Learning is acquired by reading books, but the much more necessary learning, the knowledge of the world, is only to be acquired by reading men, and studying all the various editions of them. Many words in every language are generally thought to be synonymous, but those who study the language attentively will find that there is no such thing. They will discover some little difference, some distinction between all those words that are vulgarly called synonymous. One hath always more energy, extent, or delicacy than another. It is the same with men. All are in general, and yet no two in particular, exactly alike. Those who have not accurately studied perpetually mistake them. They do not discern the shades and gradations that distinguish characters seemingly alike. Company, various company, is the only school for this knowledge. You ought to be, by this time, at least in the third form of that school, from whence the rise to the uppermost is easy and quick. But then you must have application and vivacity, and you must not only bear with, but even seek restraint in most companies, instead of stagnating in one or two only, where indolence and love of ease may be indulged. In the plan which I gave you in my last, editor's note, that letter is missing, for your future motions, I forgot to tell you, that if a king of the Romans should be chosen this year, you shall certainly be at that election, and as upon those occasions all strangers are excluded from the place of the election, except such as belong to some ambassador, I have already eventually secured you a place in the suite of the king's electoral ambassador, who will be sent upon that account to Frankfurt, or wherever else the election may be. This will not only secure you a side of the show, but a knowledge of the whole thing, which is likely to be a contested one, from the opposition of some of the electors, and the protests of some of the princes of the empire. That election, if there is one, will, in my opinion, be a memorable era in the history of the empire. Pens, at least, if not swords, will be drawn, and ink, if not blood, will be plentifully shed by the contending parties in that dispute. During the fray, you may securely plunder and add to your present stock of knowledge of the jus publicum imperii, the court of France hath, I am told, appointed le président Augier, a man of great abilities, to go immediately to Ratisbonne, pour y souffler de la discorde. It must be owned that France hath always profited skilfully of its having guaranteed the Treaty of Munster, which hath given it a constant pretense to thrust itself into the affairs of the empire. When France got Alsace yielded by treaty, it was very willing to have it held as a fief of the empire, but the empire was then wiser. Every power should be careful not to give the least pretense to a neighboring power to meddle in the affairs of its interior. Sweden hath already felt the effects of the Tsarina's calling herself guarantee of its present form of government, in consequence of the Treaty of Neustadt, confirmed afterward by that of Abo, 
though in truth that guarantee was rather a provision against Russia's attempting to alter the then new established form of government in Sweden, than any right given to Russia to hinder the Swedes from establishing what form of government they pleased. Read them both, if you can get them. Adieu. End of section 132. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.